couple of months ago, a little bit longer now, I was, um, had a privilege of going away for a bit of time and uh, having a bit of um, time of um, pastoral development, uh, reflection, also a chance to hear a number of different people speak and uh, out of that I had a number of thoughts that I put down and uh, out of the story that uh, we've heard read today, the different stories, I want to share with you some of those thoughts that um, are on my heart and on my mind for the church and uh, where, where the, I hope to see this church but other churches as we, as we move forward. These are very familiar stories that... Uh, for many of us that we heard just read this morning, I've heard them preached on many times, uh, looked at it different ways and all sorts of things. So I'm aware that these, this for many of us is not something new that you're listening to or have heard this morning. But what I want to focus on this morning is as we, as we think about that and as we think about these stories that we've just listened to is, is, is learning from them and learning specifically this is... is as we listen to these words of Jesus, what can we learn from what he values out of these stories and what he shares with us through these stories? What, in fact, are the things or the thing of value that comes out of these stories? And, and my, my hope is this, as we, as we think about that, that we would go, you know, as I leave here today, I really do want to align myself with Jesus if I'm not already, or I need to realign myself with Jesus and what, what, what he truly values, valuing what is valuable. We, we've got the stories here of the father who, who does not stop searching. We see the, 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 those in the story searching until the lost is found, seeking after the one, giving up in some ways, leaving the 99 to go, and search after the one. The father who throws a party for when his child returns, even though the child does not, his son deserve a party at all. Encourage you just to keep your Bible open this morning or your phone, whatever you use to, uh, to use as your Bible to Luke chapter 15. One of the things that we see throughout the Bible is this, is that when we look at the life of Jesus and as it's written throughout the, the four different Gospels, the four, different, uh, the four first uh, books of the Bible in the New Testament, we see that Jesus does not gravitate himself towards the religious people. He didn't pursue being with religious people. He actually gravitated towards people who were actually nothing like the religious leaders. And, in fact, nothing like him. Here's the thing, though, when it came to, uh, when it came to Jesus and, and the people that he was with, they actually liked being with Jesus. Those who were nothing like him. And Jesus not only liked them, but he loved them. People who were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus and he liked them back. Those who we might class who are ungodly were drawn to him. 
the people that were most uncomfortable in the temple in the time of Jesus, most uncomfortable with the rituals, most uncomfortable with all the religious things that happened in the temple, were most comfortable with Jesus. But those who liked most being in the temple felt most or least comfortable with Jesus. One of the things that uh, was brought to my attention um, while I was away, that if you read the book of uh, Mark, you take the time on a rainy day, and I'm guessing a rainy day is going to come pretty soon again here in Melbourne. Uh, If you take the time and you read through the book of Mark, go ahead and try underlining every time it says in the book of Mark, a crowd gathered around Jesus. There were large numbers of people who were around Jesus. The crowd built around Jesus. When Jesus left, the crowd dispersed. You will see that over and over and over again throughout the book of Mark. Everywhere that Jesus went, he drew a crowd. And this crowd of people were the people who were nothing like him. Now the challenge for you and for me for the church in general, is many of us grew up in the church knowing this fact. The church is his body. The church is his body. This church, Kilsai South Baptist Church, is his body. We represent him. This is not my church. I think we forget sometimes and we can fall into the trap of believing this is my church. But the church is his body. Which means that what is true of Jesus personally needs to be true of us collectively. To be true of his church. It should, in many ways, that should be our mission. That people are drawn to his church just like they were drawn to Jesus. Even people who are nothing like Jesus was drawn to him. That should be the case for the church here and now. They were drawn to him. It needs to be true of this church. That we are likable. That you are likable. Are you likable? Maybe you're not the right person to ask that question. Maybe the person next to you, you should ask, am I likable? Maybe just don't do that just right now because that could create an interesting conversation maybe. Even the people that are nothing, in a sense, like us, like us. Here's the thing, and it's really important to point this out, because some of you might be getting nervous. We don't want to water the message of Jesus down at all. We don't want to take shortcuts. We don't just want to have happy messages, happy things all the time. 
But we need to be the place, we need to be the people, we need to be the church that draws people to him. You need to be that person. I need to be that person. That we're doing all that we can to be in line with Jesus. To be on the same mission with what Jesus was about. And we actually need to avoid what Jesus avoided. It's important as we think about this, as we move forward as a church, that we resist the things that make the unchurched people choose not to follow Jesus because of the things that they see of the church, what they see of followers of Jesus, that they resist Jesus because of that. May we make the message of Jesus, may we make Jesus irresistible. It's a challenge. It's a big challenge. Maybe bigger than ever before. You know, when you read through the the Gospels especially, throughout the first four books of the New Testament, we see and you notice Jesus uses different adjectives to describe people. I think we all have adjectives for different people. There are the rich people. There are the educated people. There are the private school people. There are those, they're my people, but they're not my people. They're the good people, they're the bad people. They're the football people, they're not the football people. They're the respectful people. They're the liberals. They're the labour people. They're the Greens people. We have adjectives that we use to describe people. And and let me say this, that's not going to change. That's not going to go away. But what was unique about Jesus is the way that Jesus prioritised his adjectives in describing and prioritising people. The way in which he viewed people in the world, which has really spoken to me and really highlighted to me in recent months. Because the way in which he did that, it drew so many people to him. And we read about that in Luke chapter 15. And if you've got your Bibles there, you see it in verse 1. Right there, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. Now that's pretty awesome in itself right there. Wherever Jesus went, wherever he went to speak, remember we just highlighted the crowd gathered. They didn't need flyers. They didn't need nice smelling coffee after the service, free sandals, loud organ, loud drums, whatever. No. No, they heard Jesus speak and what he had to say and they were drawn to him. The tax collectors and the sinners, that was the label that they had. The sinners were the prostitutes, they were the criminals, the ones who were within that society who were looked on as bad, wrong, 
They had those ugly labels that were given to them in the culture of that day. But here they were, the tax collectors and the sinners. In verse 2, it says to us, in that same crowd, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were in that crowd. And it says they muttered. Not, has anyone said muttered lately? Oh, I might mutter today. About, anyway, I don't use that word, but if you do, good on you. This man, they said, welcomes sinners and eats with them. It's like they're saying, Jesus, don't you get it? You're a religious person. You should be with the religious people. How come we don't get time at your table? You're with the wrong people, Jesus. Don't you understand how this works? You've got it wrong. But Jesus, in his masterful way, as we go through this story, no doubt would have known that the tax collectors, the sinners, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were all in the one crowd. They were all there. And both these groups would have used labels. They would have used adjectives to describe the different people in their society. They would have been aware of the good people and the bad people. They would have been aware of the, those who were classed as the educated and the uneducated, those who were clean people and those who were the unclean people. They would have been aware of those who were the men and who were the, looked on as the women. These were the men and these were the children. In that culture of that day, they used those types of words, those adjectives to describe people. That's how they viewed them. That was their status in society. Has anything really changed? So Jesus decides to teach both of these groups using these stories of how he views people so differently. He tells the story of the two lost things and the disrespectful son. And he starts this way with the shepherd. He says this in verse 4, Suppose one of you had a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? Now, unlike our culture, we've got a hundred things. We lose one. We've got a hundred tennis balls, whatever it is. We've lost one. No, no dramas. But, but at that time, they would have all understood what Jesus was saying. They would have agreed with Jesus. Yep, one lost sheep, the shepherd goes looking. They're with him. They understand. And he goes on to tell that this shepherd goes from the 99... And he finds that one sheep and he brings it back and he contacts his friends and he says, let's rejoice, I found the sheep. I've got my hundred back. Here's the thing. Have you ever noticed when you lose something, it's always a good feeling when you find it? Is that a good feeling? Well, a few of you, but those who want to interact with me, it's okay to nod your head. But it's a good feeling. When you lose something of value, we focus on what's lost we don't really worry about what we do have. I, I've probably told this story before. I'll tell it again because I enjoy telling it. Uh, when our kids were really little, are they here? Hello. I haven't warned you. It's coming. 
And uh, anyway, we were at the Glen one night and uh, I took on the responsibility to look after all three of them. They were six. Four and nearly two. They were little. And uh, Son uh, was off shopping just for a bit of time out. And uh, anyway, I was looking after them and all of a sudden Haley vanished. Like vanished. Like all I was doing was just getting a coffee and she vanished. She was gone. And uh, I'm not sure of those of us in that privileged position of having kids, but that horrible position when you lose a child. And it's like this... This raising goes up inside of you that it's like, it's incredible to try to even uh, describe, but all of a sudden you just start to just panic and you start to go numb and you just begin to probably go crazy. You begin to just start telling people, have you seen this little girl? She's run off. It's my daughter. Don't you care? I can't find her and literally you forget about Samuel and Amy. You don't even know what's going on with them. You're just looking everywhere for them, for her. Can you imagine for a minute if I rung Sonia just at that time and said, well, Son, I've got some bad news and I've got some good news. I've lost Haley, but I've still got Sam and Amy. When we lose something of great value, we focus on that which is lost. That's our focus. It should be our focus. Not to the detriment of what we already have, but our focus is on the lost. To this point, they're in agreements with Jesus. Verse 7, it says, I tell you that in the same way, there will be rejoicing in heaven. Now, this is where it begins to get a little bit interesting. In the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over a sinner. Whoa. Who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. I wasn't there that day, so I'm not going to say I was. But I sense the Pharisees were feeling just a tad frustrated and a sense of redness hearing that. I wouldn't even allow those sinners into my house, Jesus. And you're saying that? I do everything right, I am righteous. Before the crowd could speak up, whatever, Jesus goes on. He says, or suppose, or suppose a woman. Even saying that, I'm sensing that would have created a little bit. But anyway, Jesus says, or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Now, we could go into what that 10 coin represented and all that, but we don't have time to do that. But what we know is the 10 coins were very valuable to her. And she'd lost one. And she wasn't going to go anywhere until she found that one coin. So she could leave home with the ten. Jesus says, doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? 
To put it in our context, it's like if for whatever reason you've got $100 and you lose that $100. I think for the most of us here, we, we wouldn't go, oh, whatever, hope the kids find it. No, 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 we give them enough money already. But we would go, where is that $100? You start searching for it. You know, when you lose your wallet, men, can't find your wallet. What's the first thing you do? You say to your wife, where is it? <laughs> no, you go searching for it. You can't find it. I just heard someone go, that is so true what he just said. Are you listening? <laughs> or if, ladies, you lose your purse. What do you do? You, you know one person you don't ask. But anyway, that's just... <laughs> but you, go, you look everywhere for it. And, and guess what happens? When, 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 uh, when you find that purse... When you find it, when you find that wallet, you're, you're pretty happy, aren't you? Jesus says this, when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbours together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. When we find our wallet, when we find our purse, no one else might care, but we're happy we've found it. When we lose something of great value, we go to great lengths to find it. The lost being found. It's a powerful emotion. And Jesus is highlighting this in what he says in these stories. Now, for you and I, as we listen to these stories, we know the background. We know, in a sense, the ending. But I'm sensing those people who were listening there at that time were going, well, what's his point? Where's he going with this? Is there, a, is there something that's going to round all this off? What's the punchline? Where are you going with it all, Jesus? And then he tells this story of the father and the, the rebellious son. This younger son who goes to his wealthy father and says, Father, one day you're going to die and I'm going to get half of everything. But, but you might, in a sense, live for a long time, so I want it now. I want my half now. In some ways, he's saying, let's pretend, in a sense, Dad, that you're dead now. Dad's out there, father's out there, even mother's out there. Can you imagine if you were blessed with children? You have children. You've got an 18-year-old or they're coming up on 18 or they might be even older than that. And they come up to you and say, right, I want my inheritance now. I want you to sell the company now. I want you to sell the family home and I want you to sell it and... I want my half and you and mum, you can rent. You'd be shattered. But also within my mind, if that was me, I'd be thinking to myself in my sadness, where's it, already, where's it all gone wrong that this has happened? It's like my relationship has so broken down. My son, my daughter had long clocked out in our relationship. They were long gone before they wanted to leave home. 
And that's, in a sense, the case here. He asks for his money. He wants to leave home. The relationship's broken. He's clocked out. It's like his father is dead. The amazing thing as I think about this is that the father, in this story that Jesus tells, gives him his inheritance. He gives it to him. It's like, does he... I'm not sure I'd respond like that. But he gives it to him. Is it because he wants to still connect? He wants to still keep that relationship there, even if it means giving him half of the whole of his stuff. But he still wants to keep that relationship with his son. That he wants, to, he wants that son to know that the relationship is still not over. So rightly or wrongly, he chooses to give the inheritance. And I'm guessing as the crowd are listening and they're hearing the story of this father who loved his son, they're listening to a situation where he loves his son more than his own reputation. In that culture of that time, I'm sure some of them would have said to that father, you are a fool. You're a fool of a man. Rather than giving half of the money he would they'd be saying the father should have stoned stoned the son yet the father funds this son's departure and he goes liquidates his stuff and gives his son half and the son leaves straight away gone If I'm listening to that story, I try, as I've done recently, try to put myself in that place when Jesus was telling that. I would have been silent, thinking, what? Because not only is the father losing the son physically, but relationshiply as well. And as we read, and as Jeanette read, he takes off, he lives the life, blows it all, and he ends up feeding and living with pigs. And time goes by, and time goes by, and he waits, and he waits. And for some of you, you can just relate to that bit of the story. You're waiting for a son. You're waiting for a daughter, a grandchild to come back into your life. And you're waiting and waiting. Eventually, not straight away, but eventually, the son is overwhelmed with the reality that he is totally disconnected and he's lost. And he's missing home, and he's wondering, is home missing me? And he comes to this conclusion that the home's not so much missing me. So if I do go home, I cannot go home as a, as, as, as a son. But I can go home and I can go back as a hired hand because I do know this, that my dad treats his servants a lot better than I'm getting treated in this pig farm. All his money's gone, all the wealth is gone, he's shamed his father, half the father's wealth is gone. And the son's missing home and he's wondering, in fact, is home missing me? And, and folks, I think in, a, in an audience this big, that there are people who might just be like that son, thinking, I, I am far from God. I'm far from 
my heavenly father. I wish I wasn't as far from him, but I'm not so sure is he even missing me with what I've done, the life choices that I've made. Is there a place with me in relationship with him? I'm not sure because of what I've done. You know, if you surveyed the Pharisees in the crowd, the teachers of the law in the crowd that day and asked them, do you think like the father missing the son, God misses sinners? I'm I'm guessing they would have said, no way, God is disgusted with them. And I think also if you surveyed the sinners, the tax collectors in the crowd and said, do you think God misses you being in relationship with you? I sense many of them will probably go, you know, I sense God's disgusted with me too. Verse 20 says this. The son got up and he went to his father. He went to his father. You know, what happens here is mind-blowing really. Of all the categories, of all the adjectives that Jesus' audience were, were thinking that he was going to say, what, what's he going to say when this, when, when, when this son returns? Because here's the thing, those people, like many of us, don't see people as Jesus sees them. This next statement is so powerful. But while he was a long way off, His father saw him and he was filled with, and it all comes down here to to this label, this adjective. The father was filled with disgust. He was filled with embarrassment. The father was filled with shame. No. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, And he was filled with compassion. That, in many ways, is my testimony. When Tim was a long way off from God and decided to turn around and come back to reconnect with God, Jesus saw Tim and he had compassion on him. But not only does it say that he had compassion on him, he ran to his son. I can sense some people in the crowd going, like, you know, you get a bad ending in a movie, or you think, I can sense some of them going, what? What? He had compassion? No, no, no. He stoned him. The father had compassion towards a son who did that. Jesus continues, the father, when he saw the son, he ran, he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. I was saying to Son last night uh, when I was talking about what I was going to speak about, I said, you know, one of the things that stood out to me a little bit with this story is this, is that why didn't the father... Do all this before the sun took off. Why didn't he run up to him? 
Say, I love you. Don't go. Throw a party now. Why not then? Why did he wait until he came home? But this is Jesus' point. That it impacts all of us here. Christian, unchurched, haven't put your faith in Jesus before, you're a Jesus follower. Jesus' point was that the father desired a relationship, a connection with his son. It wasn't about him living in the house or not, it was about a relationship. And when he saw his son who had totally disconnected himself from him, wanting to reconnect with him, with the father, the father ran, those old legs just went as fast as they could. And he kissed him. He kissed this dirty, smelly son who'd been working in the pig farm. See, for the father, it wasn't about the son being clean or dirty. It wasn't about the son being acceptable or or unacceptable. It wasn't about the son being respectful or disrespectful. All those human categories that we put people in. Jesus doesn't see people like that. And please hear this. We are his body. So we must see people in the same way. The son says to the father, Father, I've sinned. I've sinned against heaven and against you and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. In a sense, the son's saying, this wasn't an accident, dad. This was my fault. This was my choice. I made these decisions. The father says, I know. But you're back. Let's move forward. I'm not going to hold on to the past. That's a message in itself maybe for some of us of letting go of what's happened to us in the past. But, but let's move forward. Let's celebrate this. Get some new clothes. Get those pig clothes off. Get the new clothes. Get the new sandals. Get the new shoes. Let's get the fatted calf. Put a ring on his finger. Get the best DJ that you can find. Get the best music or the harp player, whatever they got into back then. But let's get the best of it. And let's put on a party. Celebrate. Good times. Come on. My son is back. See, Jesus in these stories gives you and I his adjectives for people. This is how he sees people. This is how he sees me and he sees you. And this is how your saviour or potential saviour sees you and people in the world. He says this, For the son of mine, the father says, was dead. And he is alive again. He was lost and is found. You were once dead but alive. You were once lost. You were disconnected from me. But now you're found connecting with me. Let's party. That's how our Savior sees you. This is how he sees everybody. From everyone who sits in your biology class at school, to everyone at your work, to everyone in your street, to everyone in this church, to everyone in your retirement village, to everyone in your family. You know, yesterday, um, 
I had one of those moments when I was thinking about this. I was, uh, I was at the football and there was 48,744 people there. There's a scary thought. I memorised the crowd. And I didn't count them. But I looked at that crowd and I thought, Jesus loves every person in this crowd exactly like me. And we were playing Collingwood. But we're, no, but that, but in all seriousness, that is how, this is the, this is the God. This is our Heavenly Father. It's a concept that might be really hard for us to get around, our head around, but it's so true. He sees the world and he sees those who are lost and he sees those who are disconnected from his heavenly father. And he wants and he desires those who are lost to be reconnected with him. That's his concern. They are too valuable to him. He wants the lost to reconnect with their father. And he wants his body, the church, to have that same passion, that same desire. I know my time's over, but I've just got a few little things that I just want to finish off with. You know, the reason Jesus spent so much time with those who were far from God was because they were so far from God. I, I can't claim that line. I read that. But that is a great line. The reason Jesus spent so much time with those who were away from God was because they were so far from God. We are his body. What was true of Jesus should be true of us today. And if we've been here and you've been in church for some time, maybe you may notice this. And what I'm about to say may, may make you angry at me, disappointed. This might even be your last Sunday, but I'm still going to say it. The, the gravitational pull within the church and, and I think nearly any church, any church for that matter, is towards the regular attender. Those who are connected, like most of us here. Those who are know, know what time to arrive, what time to leave. Those who know how the ministries work and the lingo and all those sorts of things, where to sit if the heat is blowing near you, what all those sort of things. You know. The gravitational pull for the local churches towards the 99 and not the one. Yet here's the thing. For our Heavenly Father, the value of the one is so great. He sees the 99 who are connected. He sees them and he says, I'm going to seek after the one. Does that reflect this church? I'm not saying, well, let's just forget everyone else here. I'm not, don't, please don't hear that. But I'm saying, do we seek and do we work hard enough for the one? Or is the desire to make sure the 99 are fatted up and just happy and content? Do we see the good people and do we see the bad people? Do we see the conservative people and do we see the liberal people? Do we see the young people and the older people? The mature and the immature people? My people and not my people? Do we see those who are, who are battling with their sexuality 
and those who are not. We see those who have battles with alcohol and those who, are, who don't. Another good people. We've got to be careful that we don't fall into the cultural norms. We don't see the world as the world sees it, but we see it as how our Heavenly Father sees the world. Because when we start getting into this, the good people, the bad people, the educated, the uneducated, the clean, the unclean, the liberal and the conservatives, you know what we're doing? We're actually joining into the ranks of the Pharisees. And we know what Jesus said to the Pharisees. Our Heavenly Father requires us and he desires for us to see people as he sees them. That we value people so much who are disconnected with him. May we not be content here. May we value those that Jesus values. And you know what, with all of that, it might require some change here. I've not got a list of things that I'm going to hand out at the end that we're going to change or anything like that. But it might require us to change, change our attitudes, change our thinking, change how we do some things. Always, always with the desire to do what Jesus taught, to seek to connect and to, and to reconnect with those who Jesus, their relationship with Jesus is not there. May the things of the heart of God light up our heart. That's why I just love baptisms. I've got to say I love baptisms. Because when people are getting baptised, they're standing up and saying, I've connected myself with Jesus. I've reconnected myself with him. Sometimes I look out there and we clap like it's a nice shot on the par four at the golf club. We should be jumping up and down, really. Because they are in heaven. Folks, at time to time, I needed a prod. I needed a prod while I was away with this and I'm just giving you a little bit of a prod. But to remind us of how God sees our unchurched friends, family and mates, colleagues, school friends, uni mates, those who come to this church who are unconnected with Jesus at this point. Jesus liked being with people who didn't share his views and he liked them anyway. And I hope that is the case for this church. Let me pray. God, at times I know that I can be a judgmental person and see people in a way that you don't see them. And I put adjectives and I label people in a way that is not how you do you don't see people like that may may i may we as a church take our cue from the father in this parable May, may we value what you our heavenly father does that that unconnecting person from you that we would value them that we would seek to do all that we can that they would connect with you May we not get 
comfortable here and, and just want to be happy here for our own sake. Motive us, motivate us, I ask, I pray, from our children's ministries to our youth ministries to our music ministries to our ministries in Glengollen and Wormsley to bread runs to men's groups, to women's groups, to leadership. God, may may we, knowing that we are your body, be in line with the heart of Jesus, of seeking out those who are yet to make a commitment to follow you, those who have drifted away from you, May we be an inviting church for people who may be nothing like us, but still like us. And this is a place where they have that place to explore, to ask questions, and hopefully come to that place of accepting you as their saviour. May we be a relevant church for you, Lord Jesus. In your precious name we pray. Amen.